Now Antonius was made so subject to a woman's will, that though he was a great deal stronger by land, yet for Cleopatra's sake, he would needs have his battle tried by sea. Plutarch in Parallel Lives We cannot underestimate the role Shakespeare played in establishing Antony and Cleopatra as one of the world's most infamous tragic couples. Their story is a unique and powerful one. They were two of the ancient world's most powerful people, and when they came together, they should have been a force to be reckoned with. However, their love destroyed them both in an epic way. Their lives had the makings of an amazing story, which is probably why Shakespeare decided to put his own spin on it. Today, Eli and I will be discussing the source material Shakespeare used when he wrote Antony and Cleopatra. So strap on your sandals, we're heading to ancient Rome and Egypt. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Breaking Bard. I'm your host, Sarah, also known as Ripe Good Scholar on a tiny corner of the internet. I am joined, as most times, by my husband, Eli. That's me! We're feeling weird. We're feeling weird today. Perhaps it's from sleep deprivation. Sleep deprivation will do that. I couldn't even say deprivation right then, and I pride myself on my enunciation. You pride yourself? I pride myself on my enunciation. So we have a sick kid, and it makes us loopy because he wakes us up. Which is a perfect time to record, because we're extra funny. Hooray! Cheers. Cheers. Today, we're going to be discussing the source material for Antony and Cleopatra. As I usually talk about, Shakespeare has very few plays that he came up with out of thin air. Obviously, most of us know that Mark Antony and Cleopatra were real people. What? And he, you know, he must have pulled from a legend as he did from the histories. But I think we often don't realize that scholars have been able to narrow down not just what text he used, but what translation of that text he used. Really? Yes. Um, so for Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, and Coriolanus, Shakespeare used Plutarch's Lives as his source material. I did not realize that Coriolanus was a history. I thought he made that one up. Nope. Welp. Egg on my face. This is like when uh, one of my coworkers was like, where is Macbeth buried? And I'm like, I don't know. And she's like, Sarah, this is why I go to you with these things. I was like, you know Macbeth was a real person, right? Yeah, that's another one that yeah. a lot of people don't know. So, anyway, Plutarch was a Greek philosopher slash essayist slash biographer. Um, you know, one of just, I mean, the history makers we have of... The ancient, ancient world? Yeah. Exactly. Now, it's important to note that Plutarch was writing a hundred years after the events took place, which puts him on like a little bit better footing than Holland Shed, who was writing like 500 years after some of it happened. So yeah, Plutarch was writing about a hundred years after the events of Antony and Cleopatra would have taken place. So he would have been depending on oral history or the written history of others that we just don't have. Or maybe we do have, I don't know. I didn't go that much into Plutarch. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to have any uh, first-hand accounts, really. No. He maybe could have had... Second-hand? Maybe second-hand, as in, like, a father told a son. Yeah. 
but that's about it. But also, I mean, this was a fairly large world event. You essentially had two of the leading Western leaders warring, you know, culminating yeah. in a double suicide. So it's not like, you know, people didn't write that down at the time. Yeah, I think the Roman Civil War was a pretty popular topic in Roman history. One would think. I know over here in America, we just don't care about our Civil War at all. Nope, it's never covered and probably doesn't matter or affect everyday life to this day. And Shakespeare didn't write, like, four to five plays about the Wars of the Roses. <laughs> <laughs> so Civil War is not that important. No, no one ever cares about them. What's interesting about Plutarch is in his introduction to his essay on Alexander the Great, he said himself that he wasn't too worried about history. He was more concerned about people's influence on the lives of others, which is why he called it Parallel Lives. That's the full title of this collection of essays. So he's a real... So you kind of started the whole great man theory of history. Would you like to elaborate? So there's the theory of history that's very popular, which is essentially that great men decide how history happens. And most of history is the result of the competition between great men. And it's very much discredited by most modern historians who say things like, Actually, the Black Death mattered more, or economics and trade and disease yeah. and all of these different factors set the stage and propel things forward. Exactly. Plutarch was more concerned with the influence that these great men had on each other and on the lives of others, which is also why he paired biographies based on their characteristics um i don't know the actual like original layout of the text because i just have an abridged version that covers the characters shakespeare covered but apparently he kind of you know would talk about mark antony and then another person because they had similar characteristics oh and i'd assume similar effects on the world Oh, hence parallel lives. Yes. What's most interesting, though, is that scholars are pretty sure they know exactly what translation of Plutarch Shakespeare used. He used Thomas North's translation. How could they... He lifted straight from the text, didn't he? Yeah. I imagine it's a combination of what was available what would be available to him, what was popular at the time, and then, yeah, he pretty much would straight lift word-for-word passages. It's things like this that make me laugh when I hear a uh, an anti-Stratfordian say something like, well, he had to have known Greek and Latin and been so well-traveled. Well, he probably did know Greek and Latin, but that was because really? of his schooling. Oh, yeah. yeah we, we had a whole episode on this. Well, I have... No defense, but I have this tone of voice prepared, so I'm using it. <laughs> he definitely would have known Latin. He maybe knew Greek. Um, you know, but I, I, your point stands still. I think a lot of people think like that Shakespeare personally translated all these texts. And that's just not true. Um, 
he probably translated some of it in school. I believe Plutarch's Lives was on the syllabus of grammar school for translation, but he would have had a translation that he perused. Whether he owned the book or not, we'll probably never know. That's just lost of time. But we do know that he pulled from the Thomas North translation for Julius Caesar, Antony, and Cleopatra and Coriolanus. Now you may remember the North name. I've mentioned it a couple times because- Nope. Of course you don't. You forgot our entire grammar school episode. There was an unpublished manuscript by Thomas's brother, George North, that recently um, through textual analysis, um, scholars have found that he lifted passages from that for some of his other histories. Oh. His English histories. This wasn't a translation, but um, it was, they were interviewed on a Folger Shakespeare library podcast and it cracked me up because I'm like, did you need a computer to do this? Because they read a passage from George North's manuscript that was like word for word the now is the winter of our discontent speech oh like slightly changed really yes that one yes I know. but that seems so ahistorical i don't know exactly where he pulled from you know i don't know exactly what this manuscript was supposed to be it was um something i pulled was it this guy's uh, Richard III fan fiction? Maybe. I don't know. If you're interested in learning more, I would go listen to that Folger Shakespeare Library podcast because they ex- their book is like a textbook, so it's like $100 plus. So like, if you can buy it, go ahead. But they explain how he may have come in contact with that manuscript. He's our favorite plagiarist. He is, and he owes a chunk of his success to the North family. <laughs> they, they do not get enough credit. They really don't. But uh, they should. So yeah, that's a bit of background on not only Plutarch, but the family that translated the book Shakespeare would have used. So now we can get into what he took from Plutarch, uh, which is essentially the entire plot. And like, that's not terribly surprising because it's like history. Timelines are compressed, character names are changed, you know, like we still see with historical adaptations today. So I won't fault him for that. There's a few key passages that you can more tell he borrowed a little more heavily from that I want to talk about today. Now what was interesting as I went through Plutarch is that like with Hollandshed, when I went through that for Macbeth, I think Hollandshed had a little bit more of a flair for artistic writing. Um, and like writing dialogue and things like that. Um, so there are more like direct, these weird sisters came and prophesied this, this, and this, and then Macbeth said this. Would it be fair Hollandshed was writing in English? He was. He was writing in English. He wasn't writing that long before Shakespeare was writing. To an extent, that was also the style. You know, you have to remember England was going through its renaissance at that point. So I imagine even histories get, 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 added a little flair. Yeah, get, get, get a little blush on that. Yeah, and you have to also remember when Hollinshed was writing far later and it was more of lore than history. Maybe not so much for the Wars of the Roses, but for like Macbeth, for sure. Mm-hmm. So there's a little less direct borrowing from Plutarch, but I also think Plutarch was kind of 
doing a little more of a like analytical essay on the life um and not so much telling a story you know what i mean yeah this is this, this is how mark antony's character led him to ruin yeah, and I mean, he does go through, like, there were passages, frankly, I full-on skipped because, you know, it was details of battles that either don't happen in the play or, like, barely happen in the play. And it was, like, pages and pages. I was like, okay, he didn't lift any of this. Yeah. Um, to be fair, most of the battles in the play barely happen. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it would have been pretty hard to do. Oh, but what a sight to see. Those ships. There were a couple scenes in Antony and Cleopatra, as I was reading it, that I think are usually cut from productions, probably because they don't make sense. Like, they're just, like, plopped in there because they're in Plutarch. In Act 3, Scene 1, uh, this guy, Fentidius, who's in, like, this one scene. So Ventidius is talking to someone about how he just defeated Parthia. And he was, like going to do a triumph, kind of, but he was hesitant about it because he didn't want to, like, gloat too much and make Mark Antony mad. Okay. So he didn't do, like, as big of a, like, it wasn't, like, a full, like, through the city of Rome triumph, but, like, a, like, victory parade. And I was just like, where is this coming from? Like, what does this have to do with anything that just happened? It was in Plutarch. That's why it's there. No, no, I think it uh, also shows Antony being jealous and vain in a way that's undermining the meritocracy that was supposed to exist in Rome. Okay. Just from your brief description, if it's like a 10-minute scene, it's probably a bit much. It wasn't a 10-minute scene. I get your point, and I think that's why it was discussed in Plutarch, to give the full image of Antony. What I'm saying is, the scene is plopped in, never commented on, and never addressed again. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think Ventidius comes back ever. <laughs> okay. Oh, poor Ventidius. Yeah, I know. He just wanted a triumph. My guess is it also would have been something that audiences familiar with this story would have expected to see. Mm. So that's probably why it was in there. I think one of the big ones that as I was reading Plutarch, I was like, oh, hey, Shakespeare. This is where you wrote this. Was when Plutarch is describing Cleopatra's introduction to Antony. Now, in Plutarch, we're hearing about it as though in chronological order. We're hearing like, Antony came to talk to Cleopatra and he was staging a whole thing in the middle of the city and she decided like, <laughs> sure you are, and like comes down on this amazing boat um, down the river and like pulls everybody away from the town square where Antony is and kind of steals the show. Yeah. Because she's Cleopatra. And she's like, I want that show. It's mine. It's yeah. my show now. But in the play, you know, we're years into Antony and Cleopatra's relationship. So the, the introduction is being told in flashback uh, by Ina Barbas. Mm -hmm. Oh, Antony is like second in command. I think it's worth really reading it to kind of get the whole side-by-side -side comparison. So this is Plutarch. But to take her barge in the river of Sidness... 
the poop whereof was gold, the sails of purple, and the oars of silver, which kept stroke in rowing after the sound of the music of flutes. Hot boys, citherns, vials, and other instruments as they played upon the barge. And now, for the person of herself, she was laid under a pavilion of cloth of gold tissue, apparelled and attired like the goddess Venus, commonly drawn in picture, and hard by her, on either hand of her, pretty fair boys, apparelled as painters, do set forth god Cupid, with little fans in their hands, with the which they fanned wind upon her. Her ladies and gentlewomen, also fairest of them, were apparelled like the nymphs of Nereides, which are the mermaids of the waters, and like the graces, some steering the helm, others tending the tackle and ropes of the barge, out of the which there came a wonderful passing sweet savor of perfumes, the perfume that wharfed sides, pestered with innumerable multitudes of the people. Some of them followed the barge all alongst the riverside, others also ran out of the city to see her coming in. So that, in the end, there ran such multitudes of people, one after the other, to see her, that Antoninus was left post alone in the marketplace in his imperial seat to give audience. I took from that gold poop and hot boys. (laughs) Glad you got the important parts, dear. Here is um, Shakespeare, Act 2, Scene 2. The barge she sat in like a burnished throne, burnt on the water. The poop was beaten gold, purple the sails, and so perfumed that the winds were lovesick with them. The oars were silver, which to the tune of flutes kept stroke, and made the water which they beat follow faster, as amorous of their strokes. For her own person, it beggared all description. She did lie in her pavilion, cloth of gold of tissue. Oh, we're picturing that Venus where we see the fancy outwork nature. On each side her stood pretty dimpled boys like smiling cupids with diverse colored fans whose wind did seem to glow the delicate cheeks which they did cool and what they undid, did. Her gentlewomen like the Nereides, so many mermaids, tended her in the eyes and made her bends adornings at the helm and seeming mermaid steers the silken tackle swell with the touches of those flower-soft hands that yearly frame the office. From the barge, a strange invisible perfume hits the sense of the adjacent wharfs. The city cast her people out upon her, and Antony, enthroned in the marketplace, did sit alone, whistling to the air, which but for vacancy had gone to gaze on Cleopatra too, and made a gap in nature. So it's not as direct a lift as, say, Macbeth's witches were. No. But all of the details were straight out of Plutarch. Yeah, and I think that's... Although I liked Plutarch's hot boys better than pretty dimpled (laughs) young youths. It was like H-A-U-T-B-O-Y-S. You know what? You spell it your way, and I'll spell it mine. Gotta get those hot boys fanning you. So my guess would be, though, that it's instances like that, while not as direct as we saw with Holland Shed, is how they were able to say which translation he used. Yes. You know, she was in a cloth of gold of tissue, you mm. know, or her pavilion was cloth of gold of tissue, you know, like that kind of wording is just straight up out of there. They beat her gold poop. <sighs> you need to get that out of your system one more time. I'll bring it up later. 
The scene continues as Ina Barbas described what happened after that event, which again is out of Plutarch. It's Antony invited her to dinner and she was like, how about you come to my place to eat? And, you know, she shows him up because she's Cleopatra. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of the kind of bigger parts, but there's kind of some other other details that are lifted straight out of Plutarch. One such instance is in Act 2, Scene 2, when Antony and Octavius Caesar are airing out their differences. Um, Octavius is mad because Antony's brother and wife had risen armies against Octavius, and Octavius called for Antony, and Antony did not show up, which was in direct violation of the kind of agreement they had when they set up this triumvirate. Antony, in defense, says, I didn't come to help you because Fulvia, his wife, only did this to pull me out of Egypt, to get me to come home, and I wasn't gonna do that. And that seems- (laughs) What? Wait, he's, uh, he ruled fully a third of the, of Roman territories. And so his sister-in-law staged a revolt to get him out of Egypt because no, his of... his wife. Oh, his wife. I thought you said Antony's brother and... Sorry. Antony's no. brother's wife. No. Antony's brother and Antony's wife. Still, if your wife can stage a revolt... <laughs> well, I mean, he had been cheating on her for years at this point. Oh, yeah. It's uh, very understandable. Also, wasn't his wife... Octavian's sister? No. That's later? That's after Fulvia. He marries her in this play. Now one of my favorite kind of small instances, and I think these small instances are important because I think that you're like, oh yeah, he pulled the major plot points, but kind of these little moments of like intrigue and person-to-person development are Mm -hmm. going to be Shakespeare's invention, and not always. (laughs) <laughs> the dialogue, yes, but um, like Fulvia wanting to lure Antony back out of um, Egypt. And so the, the first part of Antony and Cleopatra, Antony returns to Rome to help Octavius and Lepidus fight Pompey. Not Pompey the Great, Pompey's son. Pompey's son Pompey, because history hates us. Well, yeah, I mean, Octavius is called Caesar this whole time. And oh, by the way, when he was just full-on emperor, he went by a different name. No, we, what it, the, the way it goes is uh, we call him Augustus uh, because he tacked that on to the end of his name while he was emperor. But uh, as emperor, he went by Gaius Julius Caesar. Of course he freaking anyway rome might be worse than england (laughs) Uh, with the names that's where i'll leave that anyway they're like all gearing up for battle and then poppy's like oh antony showed up let's 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 talk (laughs) so they basically don't end up fighting or like there's a small battle and anyway they come to an agreement and then they said okay so i mean we're all here might as well have a triple feast am i right Triple feast! So they start on Pompey's boat. Because uh, Pompey's just been dominating the sea at this point. And they were kind of like, can you stop though, please? 
And so while they're all feasting and Auntie's telling them all about how much fun he's having in Egypt, um, Pompey's servant, his, you know, kind of second in command comes up and is like, hey, what if I just cut the line and the boat kind of slowly drifted off and who knows what would happen then? Basically saying like, how about we kill them all? And this was my favorite, because Pompey's response in both Shakespeare and Plutarch is, well, if you had just done it and not told me, it would have been fine. But since you told me, I have to say no. (laughs) I'm just like, what? (laughs) It's about appearances. You know, it was just like, it was so funny because it was literally just those two talking. So like, no one had to know that got permission. Coffee's like, if you had just done it, I could have been like, oh, that was very naughty of you. But That's that's so weird. Right? And I'm like reading that, I'm like, LOL Shakespeare, and then I'm reading Plutarch, and I'm like, just kidding, LOL Plutarch. (laughs) Kind of another one of the big ones is this Egyptian soothsayer that shows up while Antony is in Rome, and says, you shouldn't be here, you need to go back to Egypt. There's a couple lines in particular that caught my eye. This is Plutarch. So the soothsayer says, Antony's fortune, which of itself was excellent, good, and very great, was altogether blemished and obscured by Caesar's fortune. And therefore he counseled him utterly to leave his company and to get him as far from him as he could. For thy demon, said he, that is to say the good angel and spirit that keepeth thee, is afraid of his, and being courageous and high when he is alone, becometh fearful and timorous when he cometh near unto the other. The soothsayer in Shakespeare. Thy demon, that's thy spirit which keeps thee, is noble and courageous, high, unmatchable, where Caesar is not. But near him, thy angel, becomes a fear as being overpowered. Therefore, make space enough between you. I read just that chunk of Shakespeare. He talked more about the other stuff too, just but it's more of a like dialogue. Yeah, that's a pretty, them. that's a much more direct limp uh, lift. Yeah, and um, Plutarch goes on to say, you know, Antony kind of thought about it and was like, yeah, I mean, like we play cards and Caesar always wins or dice or whatever they played, you know, and it, like I try to beat him. Settlers in, of Catan, right? Yes. I try to beat him in this sport and he always wins, you know, and and stuff like that. And that's what convinces him to go back to Egypt, which pretty much is like the out loud inner dialogue Antony has on stage. So it's it's moments like that. Like I said, it's it's not like Holland Shed where a lot, a lot was taken. Um, But there are moments where it was heavily lifted and then obviously, you know, the plot points. Yeah are all there um so here's a question i have mm-hmm. now shakespeare's cleopatra is very hot and cold yes uh and sometimes irrational and sometimes incredibly cunning and canny plutarch really yeah so they talk about how in a way um i think shakespeare gives her more depth than Plutarch did. Um, but Plutarch directly talks about kind of to keep to keep Antony, you know, there and intrigued and all pumped up about their relationship, she'd be very hot and cold. 
you know, super loving and doting one minute and then like, screw you the next. None of the specific examples of those characteristics in Cleopatra are in Plutarch, because Plutarch really doesn't talk about Cleopatra much, except when she dies. That's very much. Wait, he's he doesn't cover one of the most powerful women in history? She's just a whore that led Mark Antony astray. Why Man. do we need to talk about her? Man, sexism, why you gotta do us like that? Yeah, so she's not really in Plutarch that much, except in kind of how she affected Mark Antony. Okay, so a lot of Shakespeare's... (laughs) If anything, Shakespeare made her more of a person. (laughs) (laughs) And so you have, you know, as we go into the sea battle... Antony's charges against Caesar of, you know, like, oh, you defeated Lepidus and took all his land and didn't give me my cut, or, you know, like, Pompey's dead now, so what was that about? Caesar's pretty much like, don't care. I mean, why would he? (laughs) So they decide to fight, Cleopatra insisting on going into the sea battle, straight out of Plutarch, even though it was a terrible idea for them to fight at sea. Like, that's made very clear, like, on both fronts. It was a bad idea for them to fight at sea, and multiple people tried to tell Anthony that, and he was like, Nope! I got some lady boats. Lady boats! Lady boats! Lady boats! This um, is what we're like when we uh, are feeling loopy after sleep deprivation. Oh, there are two parts, kind of back to back, that were also kind of funny to me that, like, straight out of Plutarch. Following the battle, their defeat, Antony and Cleopatra have to send an envoy to Caesar to mm-hmm. beg for what they want out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to send a, a school teacher because that's all they had. Everyone else left. Every, every other important person was gone. Oh! So, like, Caesar remarked on, like, how sad it was that they were like, oh, I had to send this rando dude. <laughs> Antony pretty much is just like, can you. <laughs> Wait, it was a school teacher? It was just like a school teacher. Excuse me, Caesar. I've I've got to get back to my sixth period class. <laughs> I think it was their like kids tutor. Um, <laughs> so like that was humiliating, and they were humiliated by it. So Antony's like, "Can I just live out my life in Egypt, or I'll return to Athens with cough cough your sister." <laughs> um, and just let me live out my days as a normal person. I won't, I won't be a military captain, I won't be a part of the triumvirate, I won't have any position of power, just let me live. And Caesar's like, uh, lol, no. Um, <laughs> now Cleopatra asks if her kids can have Egypt. That he, Essentially, that Caesar not take over Egypt. So Caesar says back to her, kill Antony and I'll do it, and I'll let you have Egypt. But to do this, he sends a particular messenger who's apparently very good at flirting and Cleopatra immediately starts flirting back with him. Mm-hmm. Antony walks in and is like, excuse me? Has this man whipped? Brutally, like, offensive to not just the dude he did it to, but Caesar? Mm-hmm. Whipped this guy. Like, beat him within an inch of his life. Sent him back to Caesar and said, don't do that again. You want to do this, let's fight man-to-man, one-on-one. Oh, and if you're pissed about your whipped servant, 
you have a guy of mine, go ahead and kill him, I don't care. <laughs> like, rude! <laughs> that poor guy! What about six-period Latin class? No, not, not, the, not the school teacher. It's like some, it was a prisoner of war, I guess, that he knew Caesar had. The Man. school teacher came back. I wonder why Mark Antony's men abandoned him. I don't know. It's weird. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, all right. <laughs> Which next we'll talk about Ina Barbus, because that was really funny, too. There's a lot of this I found darkly funny. Um, but anyway, so to Antony's challenge to fight one-on-one, Caesar, according to Plutarch, said, I have better ways to die. <laughs> Just was like, no. Rich on a bed of money. Well, because I watched... Um, Overly Sarcastic Productions talked about this fight between Octavius and Antony. Mm-hmm. Antony was very much lead the charge, front of the line, fighting down in the field. Mm-hmm. Octavius would kind of be the, like, almost sit in the back and supervise, but not really do any of the fighting. Because he was not a fighter, he was a strategist. That's why he's like, I have better ways to die, thank you. <laughs> I'm just like, I like how That's fair. it's kind of a, like, I'm not going to listen to you because you'd win. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, no, I admit you'd win in this. I'm just going to win the war instead. Exactly. After the flirty messenger comes, Antony's like, recharge. He's going to fight again, and he's going to win. And this is when Ida Barbas is like, I'm, d- I'm Jetsies, I'm out. Uh <laughs> And so there's this weird scene. The night before, they're going to go back to battle. So mm-hmm. this is between the sea battle and the final. And <laughs> there's these guards patrolling, you know, because why not? And they're like, oh, do you hear this weird music? Yeah, where's that coming from? And it's like music playing under the street. And they're like, oh, this is ominous. And like, that's it. That's the scene. And I'm like, but what was the music? I don't understand. And then I read Blue Dark. And yeah. apparently, music played throughout the streets and out of the city. Like, mysterious, magical music that, according to legend, was Dionysus, Antony's patron god at the time, because I guess he was just drinking and partying all the time. Woo! Abandoning him. Oh! Fun. Or maybe it was another person abandoning him. I don't know. Some his his people, you know, his mystical people abandoned him too. It was again just a moment where a lot of Shakespeare's audience probably would have been pretty familiar with yeah the story, so they probably would have been like, oh, where'd that music go? But like for me, not knowing that, I was like, why are we talking about weirdo? What is what is happening? What? <laughs> it, why is this? What What are we doing here now? Ina Barbus betrays Antony, gets sad about it, just dies. Like, just drops dead. I guess he maybe took something, I don't know. Yeah, but... sometimes when you're sad, you just drop dead. <laughs> I mean, like... That's why was... funerals usually come in a baker's dozen. I'm, like, reading that, and I'm like, he just died. Like, he just up and... What? So I'm reading Plutarch, hoping that it's gonna be like, oh, he drank poison or something. Nope, he just died. It was, it was, his name wasn't Eno Barbas. He changed the name. Don't know why. Seems irrelevant to me, but... Okay. Eno Barbas just seems better than Philip. I forget. I, I could not even pronounce the name, I feel like. I don't even write down the page number, so... Sorry. Um, I will never forgive you. 
So now we get to the end. First, we get to hear about Anthony's epically failed suicide attempt. So first, he tries to get someone else to do it. Okay, that's a that's a that's kind of lame. Not not like the not will, the unwillingness to commit suicide, but putting that on someone else. That's not that's not cool, man. Yeah. So um, he asked a um, well. I'll read you some Plutarch. Now he had a man of his called Eros, whom he loved and trusted much, and whom he had long before caused to swear unto him that he should kill him when he did command him, and then he willed him to keep his promise. His man, drawing his sword, lifted up as though he meant to have stricken his master, but turning his head at one side, he thrust his sword into himself and fell down dead at his master's foot. Then said Antonidas, O noble heiress, I thank thee for this. It is valiantly done of thee to show me what I should do to myself, which thou couldst not do for me. Romans are so frickin' dramatic. I know, right? Um, so in, in Shakespeare, Eros has Antony turn around. Because he's like, I can't look at you while I stab you. Antony's like, okay, that's fair. And he's like, do you want me... Okay, should, should I strike now? And Antony's like, yeah, do it. And then he kills himself. And Antony says, Thrice nobler than myself, thou teachest me, O valiant Eros, what I should and thou could not. So, again, a pretty close lift of what Antony said to Eros. Yeah. But it's just, it's just a cluster. You know, a lot of times <laughs> when you hear about... Shakespeare lifting from histories you're like well yeah but he put on his own thematic ideas nope <laughs> and that's what I mean and that's where I think like sometimes citing these little examples matters yeah you know and so you know Antony fails at stabbing himself he fails well I mean he, he successfully stabs himself he okay. fails at killing himself. Oh, that's that's the worst outcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just... I'd much rather like, completely fail at stabbing myself. It's just almost comically bad. And he's, like, laying there, like, help me! And, like, someone runs in and goes, oh, no! <laughs> he's, like, <laughs> he's, like, kill me! And they're, like, no. I can't kill Anthony. <laughs> so they just, like, leave him there. And then Diomedes comes in and Antony so just went like back out of the <laughs> standing there like what do we do? And so Diomedes comes in and he's like, Where's Antony? And Antony's like, Diomedes, kill me, please. <laughs> and Diomedes is like, Oh Cleopatra just sent me because she she was afraid this was gonna happen when you heard that she died because she faked her death. Of course. Because she's dramatic. Um, and so he gets carried to Cleopatra, dies in her arms, and she buries him. Um, in Shakespeare, and I don't know about Plutarch, it says that she buried him in the Roman um, funeral traditions. Okay. But we don't know because we still haven't found him. Yeah. So I'm not um, familiar with the Roman funeral traditions. So. Well, I guess what 
it'll be interesting if we find their tomb someday mm-hmm. to see if he's mummified or not. Oh, yeah. Were they still doing mummies? I assume so. Hmm. I don't know. I'd assume so. Hmm. Guess we'll find out. Woo! I'm not an Egyptologist. Um. So, what was surprising to me as I was reading Antony and Cleopatra, I was like, Antony's dead by the end of Act 4. And I'm like, there's a whole other act! I thought we just had to kill Cleopatra now! (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, Caesar sends people to kidnap Cleopatra, and the whole snake brought in, hidden in a bag of, uh, a basket of figs. Mm -hmm. Straight out of Plutarch. Like, that's all, you know, so it's kind of that, you know, high-level stuff that we know happened. Shakespeare just added, like, oh, I can make the guy breaking the figs, like, one of my little comic everymans, you know, that always, you know, has the witty banter. Oh, I'm an Egyptian, you got some figs! You know, he calls the asp a worm and is like, don't let it bite you! But, you know, and kind of not just straight up saying, like, this is a snake that's poisonous and it will kill you. In kind of that roundabout Shakespeare way. But when we get to the final scene of where the women are found at the end, mm-hmm. that's where you really see that final image of, of Cleopatra and mm-hmm. her women dead. So this is Plutarch. But when they had opened the doors, they found Cleopatra stark dead laid upon a bed of gold, attired and arrayed in her royal robes, and one of her two women, which was called Iris, dead at her feet, and her other woman, called Charmian, half-dead and trembling, trimming the diadem which Cleopatra wore upon her head." So the scene in Shakespeare is is much longer. Um, You know, it has Cleopatra asking to be attired in her finest robes and jewelry um and then she like kisses iris and iris just dies like just drops dead man there's too (laughs) many people just dropping dead (laughs) and then what's funny to me is like cleopatra's like not oh no she died she's like what antony's gonna see her first that can't happen give me that snake So we see, whereas Plutarch is just kind of like, and then they found her dead. You know, like, this is how she must have done it. Shakespeare gives us the scene. Mm-hmm. But you have Charmian, uh, you know, at the very end there, kind of adjusting Cleopatra's crown before she dies. Funniest to me is that the Romans walk in and they're like, what? How did this happen? Who knows? It's a mystery. But like, Charmian put the snake on her arm when the after the romans came in so i'm like hmm. why was this a mystery to you romans? maybe how the snake got in maybe no but no they were like how would they do it was it poison there's no blood did they so they didn't stab Ro- romans didn't know what snakes were apparently <laughs> so, what, what really comes out to me about that story though that that, that ending is that man figs would make a terrible last meal Figs are gross. A lot of them are made out of wasps. I mean, I don't, I don't know what else was in the Egyptian diet, so maybe that was like a treat. Mm. So, 
like I said at the beginning, you know, timelines were shortened, names were changed. You know, like, Antony lived with Octavia, Octavia, Octavius' sister, for years. They had multiple children before he went back to Egypt. This makes it look like, oh, we're going back to Athens, newlywed couple. Just kidding, bye. <laughs> back in Egypt. If you... Some of my big takeaways were, aside from the high-level plot points, there were a lot of smaller points taken directly from Plutarch. Mm. Um, and including some things that don't make sense to keep in to audiences today. Yeah. Like, necessarily, like, Fintidious. Because, you know, we've already literally had Romans being like, Mark Antony's just not Roman anymore. He's not holding up our Roman values. So... And there, like I said, there was no comment on that by anyone in the scene. It just happened. Mm. Um, you know, the weird music that, if you're familiar with the story, you're like, oh yeah, the weird music. But like, if you're just reading it, you're like, why is there weird magical music? Yeah, it's not really surprising that uh, Shakespeare lifted so much from Plutarch because Plutarch was the historian who covered that era mm -hmm. for the most part. Um... But I think what is surprising is how much he took the exact theming that Plutarch wrote down and just transplanted it. Yeah, yeah, because I think, you know, even when you have the Romans talking at the very beginning of Antony and Cleopatra about, like, Antony was filled with vices and it's not his fault, it's that darn Cleopatra. And that, while not like word for word said in Plutarch, might as well have been said in Plutarch. Um, yeah. You know, it was, it was those kind of ideas that Shakespeare pulled from, along with, somewhat surprisingly, making Cleopatra an actual person. Like, Cleopatra is kind of one of the heights of female characters to play in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, which makes you think about like what kind of young actors he had in his company that could play that. But Plutarch's kind of like, she was a, a hoe that brought poor Antony to vice. Yeah, it's not like Antony is documented being a drunk way before that. Mm -mm. He didn't run naked in a drunken race while being consul. Nope. Not Antony. Not Antony. He was an upstanding Roman. Upstanding Roman, indeed. Thus ends another episode of Breaking Bard. Please join us next time when we'll be discussing Shakespeare as a writer. If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, make sure to hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For more Shakespeare fun in the meantime check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. You should also check out my new YouTube channel where I just launched my first series on a Midsummer Night's Dream and I am about to start a series on Macbeth. Just search Ripe Good Scholar on YouTube. See you next time. And remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>